I'm going to read the, first, the whole first chapter of Jonah. It's not that long. What we're going to be doing is over the next, this Sunday and the next three, we're going to be working our way, well, actually, one of those weeks is interrupted. I forgot to mention before, on the morning of the 15th, that's a Sunday morning, we all go down to Camp Nomaka for the morning. Dave Ross will be speaking that morning. I don't think he's speaking on the third chapter of Jonah, so <laughs> we'll come back to that the week after. Um, but over the next four Sundays here at this building, uh, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. And it's, very, it's a very short book. Uh, here in my Bible, you can see if I open my Bible, the whole book is just on two pages. And so we're going to be dissecting it piece by piece over the weeks ahead. But I would ask you at home, maybe in your devotional time, this really was intended to be read all in one shot. And I think we'll get more out of our times together if we have, as a church, spent the time reading the book of Jonah. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the whole first chapter uh, right now, and then we will dive in and enjoy some thoughts about it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and, what, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We'll stop right there. So there, this is the beginning of the story of Jonah. 
Uh, there is no book in the Bible that demonstrates, I think, more fully God's mercy on the undeserving. Not just the wicked Ninevites, but undeserving Jonah as well. Uh, it's a book that's going to speak to us in the weeks ahead about God's sovereignty over the created world that we live in, about the affairs of nations, and the hearts of individual men and women. Although God's loving, gracious pursuit of the wicked Ninevites is certainly going to be a big part of this story, 90% of the story is about God's loving, gracious pursuit of one man, Jonah, his wayward prophet. The main character of this story, Jonah, is a mass of personal contradictions. He is a prophet who has to be reprimanded by a pagan sailor for not praying in the midst of a storm. He's a servant of God who is known mainly for his refusal to serve. And he is a preacher who, we will see, becomes angry at the success of his ministry. <laughs> He's just a strange man, Jonah, in some ways. I want to ask you this question, though. Have any of you ever dreamed about quitting your job in just a spectacular way? I think a lot, I think a lot of people who just work out there uh, have this recurring daydream about how they would quit <laughs> if on the, just their worst day. Have you guys ever thought I had these kind of quitting fantasies? And you know that all the things that you dream up that you would say while you're driving in the car would not be as cool as the sputtering thing that you said actually when it happens. I was reminded, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, you guys probably don't remember this. It made news at the time. This is way back in 2010. Do you guys remember that jet flew, that jet blue flight attendant? His name was Steven Slater. And he became, he had his 15 minutes of fame or maybe infamy. It is very, that line is very blurred in our culture today. When an unruly passenger refused to stay in her seat until the pilot said it was safe to get up, this flight attendant Slater became enraged. He got on the plane's public address system. He dropped many profanities. <laughs> he gave the people the middle finger, and he told the passengers that after more than 20 years as a flight attendant, he'd had enough. Slater then exited the plane by deploying its inflatable emergency slide. He slid down from the plane, rushed home before security could apprehend him. He was later arrested and pleaded guilty to criminal mischief. Have you guys ever had that kind of a daydream? <laughs> My job is great. I don't ever do that. I never think that way. That's what everybody's thinking. What about, what is Pastor Josh getting to? No. It says at the end of verse 3 that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. And I want you to understand that what is happening in this moment is that Jonah is quitting his job. That's what he's trying to do here. Now he is sliding down the inflatable ramp all the way to Tarshish. And he's just like, you can have it. I'm out. He's throwing a tantrum. And just like that flight attendant, he wants everyone to know that he has had it up to here with his boss, God. 
Please note, in verse 10, we are told that the sailors knew that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. This guy got on the boat, and they're like, hey, why are you going to Tarshish? Ugh, fleeing the presence of my God. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's what it said. I, I imagine when he checked into, like, customs at Tarshish, whatever it was, what's your business or pleasure? Fleeing the presence of God. That's what he would have said. He's telling anybody who will listen, I don't want this job anymore. I don't want to be a prophet. I quit. In my Bible, verse, next to verse 3, that's exactly what I've written there. I quit. Because that's the spirit with which Jonah was doing this. When he climbed aboard that boat bound for Tarshish, Jonah knew that he could not literally run away from God's presence. God's everywhere. Jonah knows that. He's a prophet of the Lord. He knows a few things about his God. But he could resign from being a prophet, or so he thought. He could stop preaching. He could run away from what he had been called to do. And what was that thing? Well, in verse 2 it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This verse demonstrates that God is aware. He is acutely aware of the wickedness of man. The verse says that the wickedness of Nineveh had come up before God. And that carries with it, in the original Hebrew, the idea of something horrible wafting up towards the senses uh, to assault the nose or the ears. It's like the smell of something awful or the jarring sound of breaking dishes. This idea of it coming up to him, it's repugnant, it's repulsive, it is assailing him. So picture Nineveh as the bloated, rotting carcass of an animal and the stench of the violence in that place, the lawlessness and death, the injustice of it all, is rising up to God whose patience has worn thin. He's going to give them just one more chance. But for Jonah, that is one chance too many. You see, Jonah is an Israelite. Do you guys remember in our study with the Rabshakeh in Isaiah 36 and 37, do you know where his address would have been? Nineveh. It's the capital city of that great empire. These people were horrible neighbors <laughs> to the Israelites. They truly were. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians, and it was synonymous, especially in the minds of Jonah and his countrymen, with cruelty. Like, you know, there are certain places on planet Earth that become conflated with a feeling. Like, if I threw out the name Siberia, most of us would think exile, gulag, cold, misery, like the place where you're sent to be punished. Instantly, when I say Siberia, or if we even just use that in common English vernacular, like, oh, he sent me off to Siberia, meaning you're being punished. Nineveh, in Jonah's mind, was synonymous conflated completely with evil, barbarity, twisted, demonic, nastiness. You don't have to really wonder what Jonah's motives are. He hates these people. He really actively desires that God would visit judgment and wrath on them. 
And we don't have to look far in the Bible to see why. I mean, in Nahum's, Nahum 3, we, in 3 through 4, we read about the dead lying in the streets of Nineveh, dead bodies, heaps of bodies everywhere. People would stumble over them, scramble to their feet, and fall again. In Nahum 3, 4, it says all this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. They were exporters of this wickedness. It wasn't just a hive of scum and villainy. It was an exporter of it around the world. And none of that, that's just the Bible. Archaeologists tell us much more. Do you know what the fashion trend in Nineveh was? Necklaces of baby skulls from conquered cities. This is something they like to wear. It is a city drenched in blood. And they project power, hegemony over their neighboring peoples through fear and intimidation, which they back up regularly with displays of just naked aggression. So add to this fact that the Ninevites are the avowed enemies of Israel, committed to her destruction. The threat of Nineveh hung over Israel continually, an existential threat. And when we understand all that, we can see why Jonah didn't want to help God save them. He would have been very happy to serve as the prophet who spoke judgment over Nineveh. But this message of grace, forgiveness, could not stomach it. So he gets on the PA system. He says, I quit, slides down the inflatable raft, and off he goes. Most Bible teachers and commentaries will tell you that the reason why it was such a hard command for Jonah was because he hated the Ninevites. And you know what? That's obviously true. He really did hate them. But Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites was really, we have to understand this, this is a symptom of a deeper problem. In Matthew 22, a lawyer asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And you might know how Jesus answered him. He said, quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, two scriptures that Jonah would have had available to him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all of God's law, all of his righteous requirements and activity through his people has hung off of these two ideas. Love God. Love God above everything else and with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jonah has a love problem, not a hate problem. Here in chapter 1, we find him quitting and fleeing from God because he doesn't want to be around him anymore. And why is he doing that? Because God has commanded him to love his neighbor, the Ninevites. He's commanded him to love him as he would love himself. Jonah is a man who desires mercy for himself. And we'll see this in spades next week. But he does not that, want that mercy to extend to the Ninevites. Jonah neither loves God supremely, nor does he love his neighbor as himself. He has a love problem, primarily. And this finds expression in disobedience toward God and hatred for his neighbors. You see, it's not that Jonah doesn't love. He loves his country. 
He loves his people. He loves himself. And he loves his God as long as his God looks out for the interests of his country, his people, and him personally. Uh, But this is a very common way that people have of relating to God. I love God when he shows up with things that help me out, that are awesome. And God is a problem when he calls me to do something like this. All that is very natural to Jonah. All people everywhere, Christians, non-Christians alike, have a special affection for their own people, their own culture, their own families, their own friends, their own way of life. But God's activity among his people will always be marked by a supernatural love that extends beyond those borders into people who are not easy for us to love. Have you ever ran into this, these verses in Matthew 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you have heard that, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then get this. For if you love those who love you, Jonah, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? I mean, even the worst kinds of sinners love people who love them. And then he says this, And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles or non-believers do the same? Implied in that last one, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't you see that there Jesus is implying that his followers will be doing more than what is natural to fallen man? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You're not, you're, do, unbelievers do that. You're a believer. Something supernatural should be in evidence in your life. And this is very much lacking in Jonah. Jonah responds in a very natural way, not a supernatural way. He responds in a very carnal way, not a spiritual way, to the command of God upon his life to go and preach to the Ninevites. And he does the same thing that fallen human beings have been doing ever since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve fled from God in the garden. Jonah just, I got to get out of (laughs) here. It's getting too hot. I'm going to go to Tarshish. But Adam and Eve couldn't escape from God, and neither can Jonah. And maybe today in this room, there is someone who's been fleeing from God. Maybe God has called you to go somewhere difficult. Maybe God has called you to go to a difficult person. Maybe he has asked you to do something difficult, like reconcile with someone, to ask for forgiveness or to forgive, or to give up a sin that you love. And instead of obeying that hard command, like Jonah, you've been running ever since. You may still be going to church, but that doesn't mean you're not running. And like Jonah, you know intellectually that God is everywhere and that you cannot literally flee his presence, but you are nevertheless moving away in the opposite direction from what he has called you to do. If that describes you here this morning, relax. You're probably the only one who knows. (laughs) But pay attention 
to how that decision affected Jonah. I say you might be the only one who knows, but of course God knows. And so pay close attention to how God reacts when his children, in wayward disobedience, say, I quit. I'm going the other way. There really are only two roads in the Christian life. One that leads to Nineveh and the other to Tarshish. One road is the will of God and the other is disobedience to his will. Jonah, and maybe some in this room, has chosen the road to Tarshish. First, he went down to Joppa. Then he goes down into the boat. Then he was thrown down into the sea and finally down into the stomach of the great fish. Down, 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 down. And this is the trajectory of the road to Tarshish. It is always downward. And things get worse and worse. And all those who choose the road to Tarshish will find themselves, I believe, in a storm. And it wasn't just his external circumstances that deteriorate. His inner relationship with God has also suffered. Uh, Remember, church family, remember this. Always remember that all human beings have been made. It is your design to be a worshiper of God. You were made to live in relationship with your God. That's our function. It's our purpose. And there is no greater satisfaction or joy to be found on earth than to live out of your design as a God worshiper. Jonah decided not to live out of his design as a God worshiper. He says, I quit, and he is suffering for it. He is a prophet, accustomed to hearing the voice of God, but now he has lost that inner communion with his Lord, and now God speaks to him through a storm. He's lost his spiritual energy. He goes to sleep. He's lost his power in prayer and even his desire to prayer. He who used to be the mouthpiece of God is now spoken to by God through a pagan sailor. The heathen sailors were praying, but Jonah was sleeping. What a picture we find in verse 6 when this captain says, what are you doing? (laughs) Pray to your God. He lost his testimony with the men on the ship. He lost his influence for good because he was the cause of the storm. And I wonder how many times have people come into this very room through these doors, sat down in these pews, and unbeknownst to the people around them, they were in the midst of a fight with God. They'd set out for Nineveh. Not set out for Nineveh, but for Tarshish. God has made plain his will, but they were having none of it. And tell me, if that has ever described you, on those mornings when we sang songs of praise, isn't it true that your heart couldn't rise to the words? And on those mornings when God's word was taught, didn't you listen with dull ears? And when God's people were praying, weren't you sleepily daydreaming and thinking about other things? To flee from God, down, 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 is to flee from your true joy. I do believe that God will go after you. And that part of his correction is giving you a taste of what it is to walk away from him. 
Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but which leads to death. Joy and life are found in the upward call of Christ. And when we say yes to the difficult, challenging life of love and obedience, we are surprised by joy. So much good has been missed in the church because God's people have said no to God and have stopped up their ears and fled from his presence, believing that happiness is found in things other than God, rather than in God and his purposes. Do you believe this morning that all of God's commands are for your joy? Do you believe it? I, I really believe that all of God's commands are like a negative reflection of who he is. In other words, all that is right is so classified because it agrees with who God is in his character. And all that is wrong or sinful in some way runs contrary to who God is in his character. In other words, God didn't just pull anything out of a hat and arbitrarily say, this will be sin and this will be virtue. Adultery is sin, why? Because God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. He is a God who maintains his covenants. Lying is a sin. Why? Because God is truth. You see, everything that is right agrees with who God is. Everything that is wrong runs contrary to who he is. And so when I look at the commands in the Bible, and I say, oh, I don't like that command, I am actually saying I don't like who God is. Have you ever thought of it that way? Your attitude towards God's word is one and the same as your attitude towards God. God is the, Jesus is the word made flesh. And if I ever encounter in this book, oh, I don't like that. (laughs) That's That's a statement in my heart about how I truly feel towards God. But here's the thing, here's what I really want you to believe. Truly, God has given us his commands. He's given us himself so that you would experience the very summit of human joy. He has. Uh, And the reason why I really do believe this is this. God is God after all, right? What does he need from you? Nothing. Nothing. God is perfect. He is perfect in all his ways. He is perfect in his attributes. He needs nothing. You have nothing that he needs. You, he has no itch that you can scratch. Nothing. He's perfect. Such a perfection in God can only spill over as a blessing to us. He did not give his commands because he wants something from you. He has given you his commands because he wants to give you something. He wants you to know joy. He wants you to experience a happiness that you will not regret 10,000 years from now. And Jonah has lost sight of this. Jonah believes that true satisfaction would be if God did what he thought he should do. He has stopped looking for joy in what God has commanded, and instead he is saying to God, joy would be if you did what I think you ought to do. 
And this sort of kangaroo ticket approach, this upside down, backwards, we, we see this in spades. Sometimes I see this in my own life. And Jonah is a cautionary tale about where that takes us. One of the questions that comes up here as we study Jonah is this, why not let this wicked, unloving man just go his own way? When Jonah says, I quit, why doesn't God just say, I quit on you first? (laughs) You can't quit, I fire you. Why doesn't God say that? That's what I'd be tempted to say. Like, oh yeah, you quit? Well, right? But God doesn't do that with Jonah, why not? Why doesn't he do that with Josh Tate? Why doesn't he do that with you, friend? Because we've all blown it in a million ways. Isn't that true? Guys, I can't stand up here and act like I'm a paragon of virtue and uprightness. I'm I'm made of dust. I'm like you. We're all sinners. We're messed up in so many different ways. And I'm really encouraged by the fact that God doesn't just let this sheep of a man wander off to his own destruction. He's a shepherd God. And when Jonah says, I quit... He says, ah, get back over here. (laughs) Where do you think you're going? I love you too much to let you do that, Jonah. And that is the first reason why, because he's a shepherd, and Jonah is one of his sheep, and we can never question God's abilities as a shepherd. I think there are two kinds of storms that we encounter in the Bible, maybe more than that, but as I was thinking about it this week, I think there are two generally. There are perfecting storms. We see that, for example, in James 1, 2, and 4, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. That's describing a storm that God is using to refine and perfect. And then I think there are also correcting storms. And this is certainly true for Jonah, he has brought this on himself, for sure. In Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, God says through his word, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God loves Jonah. The storm, the belly of the fish, it's all proof of his love. Often when we're in the storm, we question God's love for us. But it is precisely because Jonah is his boy, it's his son, that he chastens and corrects him and pursues him. We should thank God for these storms when they come upon us. They are a precious reminder that God loves us. Listen, God did not have to send this storm The Lord could have let Jonah go on in his rebellion. He could have just cut him off. This was a loving storm, if you will. This is a spanking. The storm was a sign that God was not finished with Jonah yet. And not because God needed Jonah. He could have just called someone else. Isn't this true? It's not like Jonah had some unique set of qualities that God needed to get this thing done. Neither do we. God's pursuit of me, his pursuit of you, is not because he needs us. God doesn't care a lick about what we can do for him. He cares about who we be in our hearts, not a service we provide. 
Consider 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Tell me, what matters to God? What you do or why you do it? It's the latter. This is about Jonah's heart. This is God's pursuit of Jonah. This is about God's correction and repentance of that man more than what he can do for him. God knew who he was calling when he told Jonah to go do this thing. He knew about the idol of hatred that he had erected in his heart for the Ninevites. And confronting his idolatrous bigotry against the Ninevites was half the point of what God was doing when he calls him to go do this task. When God calls you to go do something difficult, don't you think he knows your heart? Don't you think he knows the struggles and the temptations that that then presents to you? This is God's business in your heart. I think this is why God confronts us and stretches us with these kind of challenging commands. Because he wants to do a work of making us more and more like the God who has saved us. I'll end with this thought. This chapter ends in kind of a dark place. It ends in verse 17 with, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I picture Jonah in the whale, my mind instantly conjures up an image that I probably saw in a cartoon or a Far Side comic or something of him sitting there with ample space around him, the rib cages behind him, there's dead fish, and he's like, hmm. <laughs> okay. This is actually, with great economy of language, just a few short words painting for us what I think is probably one of the most horrifying realities a human being can live in. I think you, I would have actively begged for death if I was in there for five minutes let alone three days. It's just two sentences long, short on details, but if you use your imagination and science, we can recreate what Jonah must have experienced in there. It's pitch black. There's no light at all. Sloshing gastric juices wash over you, burning your skin, your nose, your eyes, your throat. Oxygen is very scarce. And what air you can breathe is unbelievably foul. There is no liberty of movement. It is very form-fitting, like being buried alive in a heavy rubber coffin. The rancid smell of digesting food causes you to throw up until your own vomit is added to the rotting stomach contents that surround you. Everything is slimy, wet, and cold. Your face trying desperately to catch a breath, is pressed against the stomach lining. The stomach itself is cramped, confined, very form-fitting, like a bag. It is exactly like being buried alive. 
You cannot move. Your heart races. You battle mentally against the horrible sense that you are trapped under a great white weight and denied liberty of movement. You would probably wish for death. It was unbelievably claustrophobic in there. With every turn and dive of the creature, you slip and slide in the cesspool of digestive fluid. For three days and nights, you endure in this harsh place. God's grace comes in surprising forms at times. Perhaps this morning you find yourself in the stomach of some dark, slippery, distasteful circumstances. And if so, I want to encourage you. You are in that place not because God hates you or because he has abandoned you, but because he loves you. And if it is a refining storm that he has allowed to enter your life, he wants to bring some sweet fruit out of these bitter days. And if it is a correcting storm, he wants, you to, bring, he wants to bring you to repentance. He wants you to taste what it is like to walk away from him and to relent and return. And I hope you'll return next week when we take up chapter 2. Chapter 1 leaves things off in a very dark place. And that's where I'm going to leave my sermon this morning, which might break the rules of stuff in my preaching classes in school, but that's okay. In chapter 1, Jonah runs from God. But in chapter 2, he comes running back and finds deliverance. I hope you can join us next week as we continue this conversation with God. Dear Heavenly Father, humanity was lost. We were cut off. We were separated. We had been swallowed up in a dark place. And amazingly, Jesus came down into that place, took our place there, and delivered us up and out. God, in many ways, Jonah's story is uncomfortably close to our own stories. And Father, I don't know exactly who I'm talking to this morning. I don't know how these words are falling on different ears. But God, there's something here in the story of Jonah for all of us. And God, if there is one here among us, or listening online, who has set off for Tarshish, who has heard plainly your calling on their life, but because it looked too hard or distasteful, didn't line up with their vision of things. God, they've set off in another direction. Father, I pray that they would pay close attention to Jonah and that they would turn, they would relent, come back, and seek joy in your purposes, in your commands. God, help us to know and believe and trust that your commands are for our good, for our joy. Father, the great tragedy of human beings is that we look for happiness in things other than you and in obedience to what you've commanded. God, convince us by your Holy Spirit that the way to joy and freedom and satisfaction is found in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.